The Ego and His Own by Max Stirner, continued, Cassette 9, Side 1. But you do not justify the state's fear. You lie, but do not swear falsely. If you show someone a kindness, and he is not to know it, but he guesses it and tells you so to your face, you deny. If he insists, you say, honestly, no. If it came to swearing, then you would refuse, for from fear of the sacred, you always stop halfway. Against the sacred, you have no will of your own. You lie in moderation, as you are free in moderation, religious in moderation. The clergy are not to encroach. Over this point, the most rapid of controversies is now being carried on, on the part of the university against the church. Monarchically disposed in moderation. You want a monarch limited by the Constitution, by a fundamental law of the state, everything nicely tempered, lukewarm, half gods, half the devils. There was a university where the usage was that every word of honor that must be given to the university judge was looked upon by the students as null and void. For the students saw in the demanding of it nothing but a snare, which they could not escape otherwise than by taking away all its significance. He who at that same university broke his word of honor to one of the fellows was infamous. He who gave it to the university judge derided, in union with these very fellows, the dupe who fancied that a word had the same value among friends and among foes. It was less a correct theory than the constraint of practice that had there taught the students to act so, as without that means of getting out, they would have been pitilessly driven to treachery against their comrades. But as the means approved itself in practice, so it has its theoretical probation too. A word of honor, an oath, is one only for him whom I entitle to receive it. He who forces me to it obtains only a forced, hostile word, the word of a foe whom one has no right to trust, for the foe does not give us the right. Aside from this, the courts of the state do not even recognize the inviolability of an oath. For if I had sworn to one who comes under examination that I would not declare anything against him, the court would demand my declaration in spite of the fact that an oath binds me and, in case of refusal, would lock me up till I decided to become an oath-breaker. The court absolves me from my oath. How magnanimous! If any power can absolve me from the oath, I myself am surely the very first power that has a claim to. As a curiosity, and to remind us of customary oaths of all sorts, let place be given here to that which Emperor Paul commanded the captured Poles to take when he released them. We not merely swear fidelity and obedience to the emperor, but also further promise to pour out our blood for his glory. We obligate ourselves to discover everything threatening to his person or his empire that we ever learn. We declare finally that in whatever part of the earth we may be, a single word of the emperor shall suffice to make us leave everything and repair to him at once. In one domain, the principle of love seems to have been long outsoared by egoism and to be still in need only of sure consciousness, as it were, of victory with a good conscience. This domain is speculation, in its double manifestation as thinking and as trade. One thinks with a will, whatever may come of it, consoles himself with the fact that he is working for the advancement of the human race, and that his devastation turns to the good of mankind, or, in another case, that he is serving the idea, Mankind, the idea, is to him that something of which he must say, it is more to me than myself. To this day, thinking and trading have been done for God's sake. 
Those who, for six days, were trampling down everything by their selfish aims, sacrificed on the seventh to the Lord. And those who destroyed a hundred good causes by their reckless thinking still did this in the service of another good cause, and had yet to think of another besides themselves, to whose good their self-indulgence should turn, of the people, mankind, and the like. But this other thing is a being above them, a higher or supreme being, and therefore, I say, they are toiling for God's sake. Hence I can also say that the ultimate basis of their actions is love. Not a voluntary love, however, not their own, but a tributary love, or the higher being's own, God's, who himself is love. In short, not the egoistic, but the religious, a love that springs from their fancy that they must discharge a tribute of love, that they must not be egoists. If we want to deliver the world from many kinds of unfreedom, we want this not on its account, but on ours. For, as we are not world liberators by profession and out of love, we only want to win it away from others. We want to make it our own. It is not to be any longer owned as serf by God, the church, nor by the law, state, but to be our own. Therefore we seek to win it, to captivate it, and by meeting it halfway and devoting ourselves to it as to ourselves, as soon as it belongs to us, to complete and make superfluous the force that it turns against us. If the world is ours, it no longer attempts any force against us, but only with us. My selfishness has an interest in the liberation of the world, that it may become my property. Not isolation or being alone, but society is man's original state. Our existence begins with the most intimate conjunction, as we are already living with our mother before we breathe. When we see the light of the world, we at once lie on a human being's breast again. Her love cradles us in the lap, leads us in the go-cart, and chains us to her person with a thousand ties. Society is our state of nature, and this is why, the more we learn to feel ourselves, the connection that was formerly most intimate becomes ever looser, and the dissolution of the original society more unmistakable. To have once again for herself the child that once lay under her heart, the mother must fetch it from the street and from the midst of its playmates. The child prefers the intercourse that it enters into with its fellows to the society that it has not entered into, but only been born in. But the dissolution of society is intercourse, or union. A society does assuredly arise by union too, but only as a fixed idea arises by a thought, to wit, by the vanishing of the energy of the thought, the thinking itself, this restless taking back all thoughts that make themselves fast from the thought. If a union has crystallized into a society, it has ceased to be a coalition, for coalition is an incessant self-uniting, it has become a unitedness, come to a standstill, degenerated into a fixity. It is dead as a union. It is the corpse of the union or the coalition. It is society, community. A striking example of this kind is furnished by the party. That a society, such as the society of the state, diminishes my liberty, offends me little. Why, I have to let my liberty be limited by all sorts of powers, and by everyone who is stronger, nay, by every fellow man. And were I the autocrat of all the Russians, I yet should not enjoy absolute liberty. But ownness I will not have taken from me. And ownness is precisely what every society has designs on, precisely what is to succumb to its power. A society which I join does indeed take from me many liberties, 
but in return it affords me other liberties. Neither does it matter if I myself deprive myself of this and that liberty, such as by any contract. On the other hand, I want to hold jealously to my ownness. Every community has the propensity, stronger or weaker according to the fullness of its power, to become an authority to its members and to set limits for them. It asks and must ask for a subject's limited understanding. It asks that those who belong to it be subjected to it, be its subjects. It exists only by subjection. In this, a certain tolerance need by no means be excluded. On the contrary, the society will welcome improvements, corrections, and blame, so far as such are calculated for its gain. But the blame must be well-meaning. It may not be insolent and disrespectful. In other words, one must leave uninjured and hold sacred the substance of the society. The society demands that those who belong to it shall not go beyond it and exalt themselves, but remain within the bounds of legality, that is, allow themselves only so much as the society and its law allow them. There is a difference whether my liberty or my ownness is limited by a society. If the former only is the case, it is a coalition, an agreement, a union. But if ruin is threatened to ownness, it is a power of itself, a power above me, a thing unattainable by me, which I can indeed admire, adore, reverence, respect, but cannot subdue and consume, and that for the reason that I am resigned. It exists by my resignation, my self-renunciation, my spiritlessness, called humility. My humility makes its courage. My submissiveness gives it its dominion. But in reference to liberty, state and union are subject to no essential difference. The latter can just as little come into existence or continue in existence without liberties being limited in all sorts of ways as the state is compatible with unmeasured liberty. Limitation of liberty is inevitable everywhere, for one cannot get rid of everything. One cannot fly like a bird merely because one would like to fly so, for one does not get free from his own weight. One cannot live under water as long as he likes, like a fish, because one cannot do without air and cannot get free from this indispensable necessity and the like. As religion, and most decidedly Christianity, tormented man with the demand to realize the unnatural and self-contradictory, so it is to be looked upon only as the true logical outcome of that religious overstraining and overwroughtness that finally liberty itself, absolute liberty, was exalted into an ideal and thus the nonsense of the impossible to come glaringly to the light. The union will assuredly offer a greater measure of liberty, as well as, and especially because by it one escapes all the coercion peculiar to state and society life, admit of being considered as a new liberty. But nevertheless, it will still contain enough of unfreedom and involuntariness. For its object is not this liberty, which on the contrary it sacrifices to ownness, but only ownness. Referred to this, the difference between state and union is great enough. The former is an enemy and murderer of ownness, the latter a son and co-worker of it, the former a spirit that would be adored in spirit and in truth, the latter my work, my product. The state is the lord of my spirit, who demands faith and prescribes to me articles of faith, the creed of legality. It exerts moral influence, dominates my spirit, drives away my ego to put itself in its place as my true ego. In short, the state is sacred 
and as against me, the individual man, it is the true man, the spirit, the ghost. But the union is my own creation, my creature, not sacred, not a spiritual power above my spirit, as little as any association of whatever sort. As I am not willing to be a slave of my maxims, but lay them bare to my continual criticism without any warrant, and admit no bail at all for their persistence, so still less do I obligate myself to the union for my future, and pledge my soul to it, as is said to be done with the devil, and is really the case with the state and all spiritual authority. But I am and remain more to myself than state, church, God, and the like, consequently infinitely more than the Union too. That society which communism wants to found seems to stand nearest to coalition, for it is to aim at the welfare of all. Oh yes, of all, cries Weitling innumerable times, of all. That does really look as if in it no one needed to take a back seat. But what then will this welfare be? Have all one and the same welfare? Are all equally well off with one and the same thing? If that be so, the question is of the true welfare. Do we not with this come right to the point where religion begins its dominion of violence? Christianity says, look not on earthly toys, but seek your true welfare. Become pious Christians. Being Christians is the true welfare. It is the true welfare of all, because it is the welfare of man as such, this spook. Now the welfare of all is surely to be your and my welfare too. But if you and I do not look upon that welfare as our welfare, will care then be taken for that in which we feel well? On the contrary, society has declared a welfare as the true welfare. If this welfare were called enjoyment honestly worked for, but if you preferred enjoyable laziness, enjoyment without work, then society, which cares for the welfare of all, would wisely avoid caring for that in which you are well off. Communism, in proclaiming the welfare of all, annuls outright the well-being of those who hitherto lived on their income from investments, and apparently felt better in that than in the prospect of Weitling's strict hours of labor. Hence the latter asserts that with the welfare of thousands, the welfare of millions cannot exist, and the former must give up their special welfare for the sake of the general welfare. No. Let people not be summoned to sacrifice their special welfare for the general, for this Christian admonition will not carry you through. They will better understand the opposite admonition, not to let their own welfare be snatched from them by anybody, but to put it on a permanent foundation. Then they are of themselves led to the point that they care best for their welfare if they unite with others for this purpose that is, sacrifice a part of their liberty, yet not to the welfare of others, but to their own. An appeal to men's self-sacrificing disposition and self-renouncing love ought at least to have lost its seductive plausibility when, after an activity of thousands of years, it has left nothing behind but the misery of today. Why then still fruitlessly expect self-sacrifice to bring us better times? Why not rather hope for them from usurpation, Salvation comes no longer from the giver, the bestower, the loving one, but from the taker, the appropriator, usurper, the owner. Communism and consciously egoism reviling humanism still count on love. 
If community is once a need of man, and he finds himself furthered by it in his aims, then very soon, because it has become his principle, it prescribes to him its laws too, the laws of society. The principle of men exalts itself into a sovereign power over them, becomes their supreme essence, their god, and as such, lawgiver. Communism gives this principle the strictest effect, and Christianity is the religion of society. For, as Feuerbach rightly says, although he does not mean it rightly, love is the essence of man, that is, the essence of society, or of societary, communistic man. All religion is a cult of society, this principle by which societary, cultivated man is dominated. Neither is any god an ego's exclusive god, but always a society's or communities, be it of the society, family, or of a people, or of all men. Consequently, one has a prospect of extirpating religion down to the ground only when one antiquates society and everything that flows from this principle. But it is precisely in communism that this principle seeks to culminate, as in it everything is to become common for the establishment of equality. If this equality is one, liberty too is not lacking. But whose liberty? Societies. Society is then all in all, and men are only for each other. It would be the glory of the love state. But I would rather be referred to men's selfishness than to their kindnesses, their mercy, pity, etc. The former demands reciprocity, as thou to me, so I to thee, does nothing gratis, and may be won and bought. But with what shall I obtain the kindness? It is a matter of chance whether I am at the time having to do with a loving person. The affectionate one's service can be had only by begging, be it by my lamentable appearance, by my need of help, my misery, my suffering. What can I offer him for his assistance? Nothing. I must accept it as a present. Love is unpayable, or rather, love can assuredly be paid for, but only by counter-love. One good turn deserves another. What paltriness and beggarliness does it not take to accept gifts, year in and year out, without service in return, as they are regularly collected, for instance, from the poor day laborer? What can the receiver do for him and his donated pennies in which his wealth consists? The day laborer would really have more enjoyment if the receiver, with his laws, his institutions, etc., all of which the day laborer has to pay for, though, did not exist at all. And yet with it all, the poor white loves his master. No, community as the goal of history hitherto is impossible. Let us rather renounce every hypocrisy of community and recognize that if we are equal as men, we are not equal for the very reason that we are not men. We are equal only in thoughts, only when we are thought, not as we really and bodily are. I am ego and you are ego, but I am not this thought of ego. This ego in which we are all equal is only my thought. I am man and you are man, but man is only a thought, a generality. Neither you nor I are speakable. We are unutterable because only thoughts are speakable and consist in speaking. Let us therefore not aspire to community, but to one-sidedness. Let us not seek the most comprehensive commune, human society, but let us seek in others only means and organs which we may use as our property. As we do not see our equals in the tree, the beast, so the presupposition that others are our equals springs from a hypocrisy. 
No one is my equal, but I regard him equally with all other beings as my property. In opposition to this, I am told that I should be a man among fellow men. I should respect the fellow man in them. For me, no one is a person to be respected, not even the fellow man, but solely, like other beings, an object in which I take an interest or else do not, an interesting or uninteresting object, a usable or unusable person. And if I can use him, I doubtless come to an understanding and make myself at one with him, in order by the agreement to strengthen my power, and by combined force to accomplish more than individual force could effect. In this combination I see nothing whatever but a multiplication of my force, and I retain it only so long as it is my multiplied force, but thus it is a union. Neither a natural ligature nor a spiritual one holds the union together, and it is not a natural, not a spiritual league. It is not brought about by one blood, not by one faith, spirit. In a natural league, like a family, a tribe, a nation, yes, mankind, the individuals have only the value of specimens of the same species or genus. In a spiritual league, like a commune, a church, the individual signifies only a member of the same spirit. What you are in both cases as a unique person must be suppressed. Only in the union can you assert yourself as unique, because the union does not possess you, but you possess it, or make it of use to you. Property is recognized in the union, and only in the union, because one no longer holds what is his as a fief from any being. The communists are only consistently carrying further what had already been long present during religious evolution, and especially in the state, to wit, propertylessness, the feudal system. The state exerts itself to tame the desirous man. In other words, it seeks to direct his desire to it alone, and to content that desire with what it offers. To sate the desire for the desirous man's sake does not come into the mind. On the contrary, it stigmatizes as an egoistic man, the man who breathes out unbridled desire, and the egoistic man is its enemy. He is this for it because the capacity to agree with him is wanting to the state. The egoist is precisely what it cannot comprehend. Since the state, as nothing else is possible, has to do only for itself, it does not take care for my needs, but takes care only of how it make away with me, make out of me another ego, a good citizen. It takes measures for the improvement of morals. And with what does it win individuals for itself? With itself, with what is the state's, with state property. It will be unremittingly active in making all participants in its goods, providing all with the good things of culture. It presents them its education, opens to them the access to its institutions of culture, capacitates them to come to property, as to a fief, in the way of industry, etc. For all these fiefs it demands only the just rent of continual thanks. But the unthankful forget to pay these thanks. Now neither can society do essentially otherwise than the state. You bring into a union your whole power, your competence, and make yourself count. In a society you are employed with your working power. In the former you live egoistically, in the latter humanly, that is, religiously, as a member in the body of this Lord. To a society you owe what you have, and are in duty bound to it, are possessed by social duties. A union you utilize, and give it up undutifully and unfaithfully, when you see no way to use it further. 
If a society is more than you, then it is more to you than yourself. A union is only your instrument, or the sword with which you sharpen and increase your natural force. The union exists for you and through you. The society, conversely, lays claim to you for itself, and exists even without you. In short, the society is sacred, the union your own. The society consumes you, you consume the union. Nevertheless, people will not be backward with the objection that the agreement which has been concluded may again become burdensome to us and limit our freedom. They will say, we too would at last come to this, that everyone must sacrifice a part of his freedom for the sake of the generality. But the sacrifice would not be made for the generality's sake a bit, as little as I concluded the agreement for the generality's, or even for any other man's sake. Rather, I came into it only for the sake of my own benefit, from selfishness. But as regards the sacrificing, surely I sacrifice only that which does not stand in my power. That is, I sacrifice nothing at all. To come back to property, the Lord is proprietor. Choose then whether you want to be Lord or whether society shall be. On this depends whether you are to be an owner or a ragamuffin. The egoist is owner, the socialist a ragamuffin. But ragamuffinism, or propertylessness, is the sense of feudalism, of the feudal system, which since the last century has only changed its overlord, putting man with a capital M in the place of God, and accepting as a fief from man what had before been a fief from the grace of God. That the ragamuffinism of communism is carried out by the humane principle into the absolute or most ragamuffinly ragamuffinism has been shown above. But at the same time also, how ragamuffinism can only thus swing around into ownness. The old feudal system was so thoroughly trampled into the ground in the revolution that since then all reactionary craft has remained fruitless, and will always remain fruitless, because the dead is dead. But the resurrection too had to prove itself a truth in Christian history, and has so proved itself. For in another world, feudalism is risen again with a glorified body, the new feudalism, under the suzerainty of man. Christianity is not annihilated, but the faithful are right in having hitherto trustfully assumed of every combat against it that this could serve only for the purgation and confirmation of Christianity. For it has really only been glorified, and Christianity exposed is the human Christianity. We are still living entirely in the Christian age, and the very ones who feel worst about it are the most zealously contributing to complete it. The more human, the dearer has feudalism become to us. For we the less believe that it still is feudalism. We take it the more confidently for ownness, and think we have found what is most absolutely our own when we discover the human. Liberalism wants to give me what is mine, but it thinks to procure it for me not under the title of mine, but under that of the human, as if it were attainable under this mask. The rights of man, the precious work of the revolution, have the meaning that the man in me entitles me to this and that. I as individual, as this man, am not entitled, but man with a capital M has the right and entitles me. Hence, as man, I may well be entitled, but as I am more than man, to wit, a special man, it may be refused to this very me, the special one. 
If, on the other hand, you insist on the value of your gifts, keep up their price. Do not let yourselves be forced to sell out below price. Do not let yourselves be talked into the idea that your wear is not worth its price. Do not make yourself ridiculous by a ridiculous price, but imitate the brave man who says, I will sell my life, property, dear. The enemy shall not have it at a cheap bargain. Then you have recognized the reverse of communism as the correct thing. And the word then is not give up your property, but get the value out of your property. Over the portal of our time stands not that know thyself of Apollo, but get the value out of thyself. Proudhon calls property robbery. But alien property, and he is talking of this alone, is not less existent by renunciation, cession, and humility. It is a present. Why so sentimentally call for compassion as a poor victim of robbery when one is just a foolish, cowardly giver of presents? Why here again put the fault on others as if they were robbing us, while we ourselves do bear the fault in leaving the others unrobbed? The poor are to blame for their being rich men. Universally, no one grows indignant at his, but at alien, property. They do not in truth attack property, but the alienation of property. They want to be able to call more, not less, theirs. They want to call everything theirs. They are fighting, therefore, against alienness, or, to form a word similar to property, against alienty. And how do they help themselves therein? Instead of transforming the alien into own, they play impartial and ask only that all property be left to a third party, such as human society. They revindicate the alien not in their own name, but in a third party's. Now the egoistic coloring is wiped off, and everything is so clean and human. Propertylessness, or ragamuffinism, this then is the essence of Christianity, as it is the essence of all religiousness, godliness, morality, humanity, and only announced itself most clearly, and as glad tidings became a gospel capable of development in the absolute religion. We have before us the most striking development in the present fight against property, a fight which is to bring man with a capital M to victory and make propertylessness complete. Victorious humanity is the victory of Christianity. But the Christianity exposed thus is feudalism completed, the most all-embracing feudal system, that is, perfect ragamuffinism. Once more then, doubtless, a revolution against the feudal system? Revolution and insurrection must not be looked upon as synonymous. The former consists in an overturning of conditions, of the established condition or status, the state or society, and is accordingly a political or social act. The latter has indeed, for its unavoidable consequence, a transformation of circumstances, yet does not start from it, but from men's discontent with themselves, is not an armed rising, but a rising of individuals, a getting up, without regard to the arrangements that spring from it. The revolution aimed at new arrangements, Insurrection leads us no longer to let ourselves be arranged, but to arrange ourselves, and sets no glittering hopes on institutions. It is not a fight against the established, since, if it prospers, the established collapses of itself. It is only a working forth of me out of the established. If I leave the established, it is dead and passes into decay. Now, as my object is not the overthrow of an established order, but my elevation above it, my purpose and deed are not a political or social, but, as directed toward myself and my ownness alone, an egoistic purpose and deed. The revolution commands one to make arrangements, 
The insurrection demands that he rise or exalt himself. What constitution was to be chosen? This question busied the revolutionary heads, and the whole political period foams with constitutional fights and constitutional questions, as the social talents, too, were uncommonly inventive in societary arrangements, phalansteries and the like. The insurgent strives to become constitutionless. While to get greater clearness I am thinking up a comparison, the founding of Christianity comes unexpectedly into my mind. On the liberal side, it is noted as a bad point in the first Christians that they preached obedience to the established heathen civil order, enjoined recognition of the heathen authorities, and confidently delivered a command, give to the emperor that which is the emperor's. Yet how much disturbance arose at the same time against the Roman supremacy? How mutinous did the Jews and even the Romans show themselves against their own temporal government? In short, how popular was political discontent? Those Christians would hear nothing of it, would not side with the liberal tendencies. The time was politically so agitated that, as is said in the Gospels, people thought they could not accuse the founder of Christianity more successfully than if they arraigned him for political intrigue. And yet the same Gospels report that he was precisely the one who took least part in these political doings. But why was he not a revolutionist, not a demagogue, as the Jews would gladly have seen him? Why was he not a liberal? because he expected no salvation from a change of conditions, and this whole business was indifferent to him. He was not a revolutionist like Caesar, but an insurgent, not a state overturner, but one who straightened himself up. That was why it was for him only a matter of be ye wise as serpents, which expresses the same sense as, in the special case, that give to the emperor that which is the emperor's, for he was not carrying on any liberal or political fight against the established authorities, but wanted to walk his own way, untroubled about and undisturbed by these authorities. Not less indifferent to him than the government were its enemies, for neither understood what he wanted, and he had only to keep them off from him with the wisdom of the serpent. But even though not a ringleader of popular mutiny, not a demagogue or revolutionist, he and every one of the ancient Christians was so much the more an insurgent, who lifted himself above everything that seemed sublime to the government and its opponents, and absolved himself from everything that they remained bound to, and who at the same time cut off the sources of life of the whole heathen world, with which the established state must wither away as a matter of course, Precisely because he put from him the upsetting of the established, he was its deadly enemy and real annihilator, for he walled it in, confidently and recklessly carrying up the building of his temple over it, without heeding the pains of the immured. Now as it happened to the heathen order of the world, will the Christian order fare likewise? A revolution certainly does not bring on the end if an insurrection is not consummated first. My intercourse with the world, what does it aim at? I want to have the enjoyment of it, therefore it must be my property, and therefore I want to win it. I do not want the liberty of men, nor their equality. I want only my power over them. I want to make them my property, material for enjoyment. And if I do not succeed in that, well, then I call even the power over life and death, which church and state reserve to themselves, mine. Brand that officer's widow who, in the flight in Russia after her leg has been shot away, takes the garter from it, strangles her child therewith, and then bleeds to death alongside the corpse. Brand the memory of the infanticide, 
Who knows, if this child had remained alive, how much it might have been of use to the world. The mother murdered it because she wanted to die satisfied and at rest. Perhaps this case still appeals to your sentimentality, and you do not know how to read out of it anything further. Be it so. I, on my part, use it as an example for this, that my satisfaction decides about my relation to men, and that I do not renounce from any access of humility even the power over life and death. As regards social duties in general, another does not give me my position toward others. Therefore, neither God nor humanity prescribes to me my relation to men, but I give myself this position. This is more strikingly said thus, I have no duty to others, as I have a duty even to myself, that of self-preservation, and therefore not suicide, only so long as I distinguish myself from myself, my immortal soul from my earthly existence, etc. I no longer humble myself before any power, and I recognize that all powers are only my power, which I have to subject at once when they threaten to become a power against or above me. Each of them must be only one of my means to carry my point, as a hound is our power against game, but is killed by us if it should fall upon us ourselves. All powers that dominate me I then reduce to serving me. The idols exist through me. I need only refrain from creating them anew, then they exist no longer. Higher powers exist only through my exalting them and abasing myself. Consequently, my relation to the world is this. I no longer do anything for it for God's sake. I do nothing for man's sake, but what I do, I do for my sake. Thus alone does the world satisfy me, while it is characteristic of the religious standpoint, in which I include the moral and humane also, that from it everything remains a pious wish, an otherworld matter, something unattained. Thus the general salvation of men, the moral world of a general love, eternal peace, the cessation of egoism, etc. Nothing in this world is perfect. With this miserable phrase, the good part from it, and take flight into their closet to God, or into their proud self-consciousness. But we remain in this imperfect world, because even so, we can use it for our self-enjoyment. My intercourse with the world consists in my enjoying it, and so consuming it for my self-enjoyment. Intercourse is the enjoyment of the world, and belongs to my self-enjoyment. C. My self-enjoyment. We stand at the boundary of a period. The world hitherto took thought for nothing but the gain of life, took care for life. For whether all activity is put on the stretch for the life of this world or of the other, for the temporal or for the eternal, whether one hankers for daily bread, give us our daily bread, or for holy bread, the true bread from heaven, the bread of God that comes from heaven and gives life to the world, the bread of life, John 6. Whether one takes care for dear life or for life to eternity, this does not change the object of the strain and care, which in the one case, as in the other, shows itself to be life. Do the modern tendencies announce themselves otherwise? People now want nobody to be embarrassed for the most indispensable necessaries of life, but want everyone to feel secure as to these. And, on the other hand, they teach that man has this life to attend to and the real world to adapt himself to, without vain care for another. Let us take up the same thing from another side. When one is anxious only to live, 
he easily, in this solicitude, forgets the enjoyment of life. If his only concern is for life, and he thinks, if I only have my dear life, he does not apply his full strength to using, that is, enjoying life. But how does one use life? In using it up, like the candle, which one uses in burning it up. One uses life, and consequently himself, the living one, in consuming it, and himself. Enjoyment of life is using life up. Now we are in search of the enjoyment of life. And what did the religious world do? It went in search of life. Wherein consists the true life, the blessed life, etc.? How is it to be attained? What must man do and become in order to become a truly living man? How does he fulfill this calling? These and similar questions indicate that the askers were still seeking for themselves, to wit, themselves in the true sense, in the sense of true living. What I am is foam and shadow, what I shall be is my true self. To chase after this self, to produce it, to realize it, constitutes the hard task of mortals, who die only to rise again, live only to die, live only to find the true life. Not till I am certain of myself, and no longer seeking for myself, am I really my property. I have myself, therefore I use and enjoy myself. On the other hand, I can never take comfort in myself as long as I think that I have still to find my true self, and that it must come to this, that not I, but Christ or some other spiritual, ghostly self, the true man, the essence of man, and the like, lives in me. A vast interval separates the two views. In the old, I go toward myself. In the new, I start from myself. In the former, I long for myself. In the latter, I have myself and do with myself as one does with any other property. I enjoy myself at my pleasure. I am no longer afraid for my life, but squander it. Henceforth, the question runs, not how one can acquire life, but how one can squander, enjoy it or not how one is to produce the true self in himself, but how one is to dissolve himself, to live himself out. What else should the ideal be but the sought-for, ever-distant self? One seeks for himself. Consequently, one doth not yet have himself. One aspires toward what one ought to be. Consequently, one is not it. One lives in longing, and has lived thousands of years in it, in hope. Living is quite another thing in enjoyment. Does this perchance apply only to the so-called pious? No, it applies to all who belong to the departing period of history, even to its men of pleasure. For them, too, the workdays were followed by a Sunday, and the rush of the world by the dream of a better world, of a general happiness of humanity, in short, by an ideal. But philosophers especially are contrasted with the pious, now have they been thinking of anything else than the ideal, been planning for anything else than the absolute self? Longing and hope everywhere, and nothing but these. For me, call it romanticism. If the enjoyment of life is to triumph over the longing for life or hope of life, it must vanquish this in its double significance, which Schiller introduces in his ideal and life. It must crush spiritual and secular poverty, exterminate the ideal and the want of daily bread. He who must expend his life to prolong life cannot enjoy it, and he who is still seeking for his life does not have it, and can as little enjoy it. Both are poor, but blessed are the poor. 
Those who are hungering for the true life have no power over their present life, but must apply it for the purpose of thereby gaining that true life, and must sacrifice it entirely to this aspiration and this task. If in the case of those devotees who hope for a life in the other world, and look upon that in this world as merely a preparation for it, the tributariness of their earthly existence, which they put solely into the service of the hoped-for heavenly existence, is pretty distinctly apparent. One would yet go far wrong if one wanted to consider the most rationalistic and enlightened as less self-sacrificing. Oh, there is to be found in the true life a much more comprehensive significance than the heavenly is competent to express. This book is continued at this point on the other side of this cassette.